Well, as many of us are aware, uh, Snowden Baptist Church is a local church within a larger denomination, which is called the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptist Churches in Canada. And this morning we are delighted because Tom Haynes uh, has uh, flown all the way from Toronto just to be here with us and join us today. Uh, Tom uh, braved the traffic around the Tour de Lille, so we're <laughs> very thankful, Tom, that you're here. Uh, just a little bit about Tom, as uh, just before he comes to address us. Tom has been attending a fellowship churches his whole life. He was born and raised in Ontario to a Christian family who taught him the love of Christ at a young age. Tom is married to Tammy, and they have three married daughters and one son who is about to get married this summer. Tom and Tammy also have three grandchildren and a fourth on the way. For the past 27 years, Tom has served as a pastor and as a church planter, and for the last 10 of those years, he has pastored our fellowship church planters, serving as the church planting director for Feb Central, which is the regional office. Over the years, Tom has helped with the planting of close to 70 new churches. Uh, and in his spare time, and judging from this, that you don't have a lot of spare time, uh, but in his spare time, he enjoys hunting, fishing, and sailing. It was a delight for me, Tom, to share a little one-on-one -on -one before the service today. Uh, would you come forward? Tom's message this morning is titled, Unthinkable. Again, we're very happy to have you with us, Tom, and I'd like to pray for you before you preach. Thank you so much. Father in heaven... May the meditation of Tom's heart and the words of his lips be pleasing to you. And for us who are listening, may we listen well this morning. And may you continue, Lord, to prod us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. We pray your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, Pastor Brent, for allowing me the privilege of being here uh, at Snowden in Montreal. I am uh, uh, just really... Uh, excited about being here. You know, the first time that I ever heard about Snowden Baptist Church, I was a teenager um, living in Brantford, Ontario, Gretzkyville. Uh, I lived there, and uh, one of my friends went to the University of Waterloo to take engineering. And on his work terms, he came to Montreal. He was working for CP, and uh, he he had this uncanny ability wherever he went to find great churches and he talked about Snowden uh, like it was home uh, and uh, he did a couple of work terms here in in Montreal and always came to Snowden so I heard all about it didn't know anything about it uh, but now I do <laughs> uh, God is so good and he has given me the privilege of, of serving um, you know what I don't think my mic is on I think I forgot to switch it. It's on now. <laughs> okay. Uh, he's, he's given me the privilege of serving with our fellowship. And uh, like Pastor was saying, in our fellowship, I have been at fellowship churches since uh, the week I was born. Um, I was in my mother's arms in a fellowship Baptist church. So I've always been a part of it. And... Um, uh, I just count it a huge privilege to do what I do. Um, God has, has entrusted to me a ministry of um, inspiring and encouraging and equipping uh, men to start brand new churches 
all across our region. And it's an exciting time to be a part of the fellowship. You know, one of the things that we have learned as churches is that we are stronger together than we are separately. And that's part of what it means to be a part of the fellowship. We are able to do things together that we can't do alone. And uh, so one of those things that we do is to support our, our sister churches when they're having difficult times, to help equip new leaders uh, for across our region and in, in our churches when, when you're looking for a new pastor, to help in those areas and, and uh, those things. But also, uh, as we partner together, we're able to start new churches. Uh, when I was a church planter, I would look at what was going on across our region and I felt kind of sad uh, because we weren't really planting very many churches. On average, uh, for many years, we started two new churches a year. Um, and, and I just I had this feeling that I believe was from the Lord that was just, that's not good enough. That's not enough. And we need to do more. And uh, it was interesting when, when uh, in 2008... I was asked uh, whether I would serve in this role. Uh, I, I, I said to the leadership, I, I'm willing to do that, uh, but we have to do a lot more. Are you ready for that? And, uh, and they were like, yeah, we want to do it. <laughs> and so we began a journey. And, and it's, it wasn't a quick and, and easy journey. It's been a long one. Um, but we went from two a year to four churches a year and from four churches to six churches, and from six to eight, and then to 12. And, and it's kind of neat, the last two years, uh, you know, we used to plant two a year. The last two years, we've averaged 10, uh, and so 20 churches in the last two years. And uh, this year, Lord willing, we'll see 12 launched and possibly 14. God is doing something in our day at a pace that we've never seen in the history of our fellowship. Um, so we're excited about that, thrilled with what God's doing, because each one of those represents brand new people coming to faith in Jesus and a new worshiping community starting. It's, it's exciting. Um, so in church planting, the things that we do, uh, we train men and women uh, from across our region, and these are some that we took to a training event in, uh, in Orlando, actually, um, and uh, we had... Got an equip, church planter equipping time there. Uh, we have our advanced church planting institute where we train them specifically in the, in the nuts and bolts of how to do, uh, how to get from this dream to a real tangible ministry on the ground where people have been one to Christ and they're worshiping together as a new community of disciples. Uh, we, in the last few years, these are some of the churches that we have launched. Some of the times you look at that list and you'll see more uh, a city there more than once. That's because we've planted more than one in that city in that time. Those are some of the ones that we've launched. Uh, that would be going from, all the way from like the Windsor area of Ontario across to Niagara, all the way up through um, uh, Ontario, through into Quebec, into the Montreal area, and then across to Thunder Bay. Um, is where those areas spread. These are some of the projected plants over the next few years. Um, and that God is just doing an amazing thing in our day. Uh, when I first started in this role, it would come to January, and I was expected to trump, somehow come up with something new this next year. And I didn't know in January what was going to happen that year. It was, I had nothing 
on the, in the docket. And look at what God's doing uh, now. We have, this is, this is what's here. And there will be more that will come up in the next little while. This is the, how it's been, it's been uh, rolling along. These are exciting days. Uh, there, is a, there is a movement happening in Canada that is unprecedented. We're recruiting and training young men and women to be church planters. This, this couple you see in this picture are planting a South Asian church in Brampton, Ontario. Um, Brampton is a, is a church, is a community of about, uh, about 800,000 uh, just outside of Toronto. And uh, it's, it's, so it's a large city, um, but South Asian population is huge there. And uh, so they are doing that together, Jeremiah and Catherine Thomas. We have uh, churches that are planting churches that are planting churches. Crazy kind of stories going on. This is actually three church planters who are all members of the same mother church. We have one church in London, Ontario, that a number of years ago I talked with them and helped them to get started a Chinese congregation, which now meets in their gymnasium of the, of the church. Their main uh, congregation is, is English. In the gymnasium, they have a Chinese congregation now that's about 120 people in the gym. Uh, a few years ago, uh, they talked with me about the need in the Spanish-speaking community, and so now they have a Spanish-speaking church meeting in the chapel in their big church building. And so they have an auditorium and a chapel and a gymnasium. And, and so that we helped them to start a Spanish-speaking ministry, and that has grown now to about 80 people in the, in the chapel. Um, a year and a half ago, we helped them launch a third daughter church. So now there's four congregations meeting in the building at the same time. And the fourth one is Arabic. And they had to renovate space and make a place for that. And they started a ministry uh, to the Arabic speaking, primarily reaching out to Muslims and, and winning them to Jesus in London, Ontario, which is surprisingly has the highest number of Arabic speaking Muslims of any city in Canada percentage like on a per capita basis Uh, and so we're reaching out to them one church four congregations four different languages Uh, they get together and have uh, baptism celebrations try to do it as one church it's standing room only and uh, it's pretty amazing time there are things that we just didn't know about Uh, so they had a mexican independence day celebration last year I didn't even know there was one. <laughs> they had one. They had over 200 people show up to it. Nine people gave their lives to Christ that day. It's amazing. Uh, just the things that we just don't know about. We have churches that are rebirthing churches. So we've had some churches that have come to the brink of closure. And we've counseled them and said, look, you can't move on from here. So in, in uh, Bob Cage in Ontario, we had a church that was down... Uh, to single digits in numbers of people. And the youngest person of those was the pastor who was 65. Um, and, and so we counseled them to actually close and hand their assets over uh, to the church in Fenelon Falls. Fenelon Falls rebirthed the church using the facilities in Bob Cajun, um, gave them a, 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 a site planter and, and a core of people. And now in that building today will be standing room only. Um, it's packed with people that have come to faith in Jesus. It's an amazing story. The mother church is the same problem. They're packed as well. 
God's doing something. Uh, we have some of these other church, one of them at the bottom, you see the picture at the bottom of the screen here. That's a picture from uh, Kingsville, Ontario, where we had a Slovak Baptist church that was down to four people, uh, and they were all in their 80s. And we convinced them to hand that facility over uh, and assets over to the Philippine International Baptist Church in Windsor because they had a small group meeting nearby. Uh, and now that small group um, is a large group, and uh, they are, they are um, the uh, Philippine International Baptist Church in Kingsville and uh, started a brand new church there, reached a whole lot of people for Jesus and a great story. So there's, there's many of those stories going on. We are seeing church plants in all kinds of different um, people groups. Uh, the picture on the side there is, is Lal, uh, or Van Kung and his wife and, and child. They're, they're from the uh, Chin province of Myanmar, which used to be Burma. Um, reading, reaching out to refugees in the Kitchener-Waterloo area, uh, a church that went from a handful to over 200 now, um, primarily through evangelistic growth, um, just people winning, people making new disciples for Jesus. Uh, and there are planters all over the place. These guys here just just arrived a few months ago. Uh, uh, well, not both of them, actually. Only, only Nadala is here. His, his soon-to-be wife is not yet here. She's, she's in Lebanon right now. He is a Syrian refugee um, who is um, brand new to Canada, and he's planting a church in Oakville, Ontario. He wasn't even supposed to start yet. We've got him here. He's supposed to be just settling in. He's got 30 people meeting together for a Bible study. <laughs> He can't stop himself, uh, and it's, it's a beautiful thing. Um, he comes from a background where um, his father is a general in the Syrian army. Um, he is, he over, he is a, um, a tribal chief in Syria, 30 villages under his authority, and he has declared that if he sees Nadala again, he will kill him with his own hand because he's come to faith in Jesus. And... Uh, Nadala is here making disciples of Jesus. It's beautiful. Uh, and other stories as well. I can't tell them all right now. We're reaching out to bikers. You might know this guy. Do you know this guy? He is actually used to be a member, and I think he was a deacon at um, uh, where Brian Talbot is the pastor. Uh, yeah, Greenfield Park. Uh, his name is Graham uh, Morrison, and Graham and Brenda are planting a church right now. He was a deputy chief on the Montreal Fire Department. He's retired. He got his MDiv at Heritage Seminary, and he is now planting a church in London, Ontario, reaching out to bikers. Uh, and I met and taught their core group in a former Hells Angels clubhouse. That's where they meet. God is doing some really unusual things. Uh, so Graham and Brenda are a great couple. I was with them last week. Uh, we have uh, some of our churches planting daughter churches. Others are planting granddaughter churches. And some of them great granddaughter churches. And so this is a picture of Maple Baptist Church, which is a daughter church of North Victory Baptist Church, which is a daughter church of First Filipino in Toronto. But Maple Baptist just planted their first daughter church in Guelph. Uh, and so we, we're having four generations going on there. It's an exciting time. Uh, God is doing some amazing things. These guys are unusual. This is the Ano family. They're planting in north of Toronto in a community called Vaughan. 
David uh, was given a scholarship when he was young to become a medical doctor under the former Soviet Union. And uh, he was given a full scholarship. He lived in Ghana. And so he came to, the, to, to, uh, to Russia and then Ukraine and trained as a medical doctor. While there, he was witnessing to people and he led his soon-to-be bride to Jesus. And so Galena came to Jesus. Together they have six kids. First language is Russian. And so they chose Vaughn to plant because there's a large Russian-speaking population. Well, the first people that came to Christ were Pakistani. Uh, <laughs> it's Toronto. <laughs> it's it's going to happen. Right? It's just, they are so gifted musically. Uh, the first time my wife Tammy and I heard them sing, we were in a house and there was about 20 people and their family led out in music. And my wife is a musician. She's led worship. She's taught piano for 20-some years. She was in tears. They are so gifted, and the music was so beautiful. It's just, it's, it's overwhelming. Uh, and they are planting in Vaughan, Ontario. It's kind of a neat thing to see happen. Um, God is doing some amazing things. I often get asked the question, why are we planting churches? And it, after a story like that, it sounds, makes sense that we're doing this. But when you step outside these doors and you talk to a person on the street who doesn't understand what I just told them, the question, why are we planting churches, makes perfect sense to them. I, I sit on the board of an organization called Church Planting Canada. Church Planting Canada um, is, is a, a group of all the evangelical denominations that are planting churches, and we kind of work together to share best practices and, and hopefully see more churches planted, more disciples made for Jesus. One of the conversations that we have had has been with the mainline denominations who are closing churches and their buildings are being sold because it's hard to get church buildings and get zoning in cities. And so we've been trying to do that. The reality is today in the Catholic Church in Canada, the Anglican Church in Canada, the Presbyterian Church in Canada, and the United Church in Canada, those four denominations, together they have a list of 4,000 congregations that are closing in Canada. And so I get asked the question, why are you planting new churches? Aren't they all dying? And what I want to do with you this morning is actually take you through the reason why we plant churches. The reason why we do what we do, because it is the reason I get up in the morning. And it is a foundational motivation for who we are as the people of Christ. And it's, I'd say it's the reason why this church is here. We're going to go to the book of Romans this morning. So I want you to open your Bibles to Romans. And we'll start in chapter 1. And what we're going to see, we're going to actually go to the book of Romans and we're going to look at it a little bit differently than we normally uh, would uh, in the book of Romans. Often the book of Romans... Uh, it's a, it's a book that if you ask people, there, there's, some people will say it's my favorite book in the whole Bible. Uh, other people say, oh, I don't know, it's so challenging and there's all these things. People love the theological debates and the challenges in there. Is it you know, is predestination or is it free will? And we wrestle with those things as you see it explored and, and, and laid out in the book of Romans. We see all of these different challenges there. And it's a beautiful book that, that gives us this, this wonderful picture of the gospel. I would say it is the, the most 
complete and perfect picture of the gospel in all of the scriptures is the book of Romans. It's, it's wonderful. Today what we're going to do is, is we're going to take, uh, going to jump in a plane and we're going to fly up to 30,000 feet and see Romans uh, from 30,000 feet. This morning I flew out of Toronto and I couldn't see like I normally can because it was pouring rain. Uh, <laughs> but uh, normally when I fly out of Toronto to come to Montreal or Ottawa, the plane comes out of the airport and it circles around out over Lake Ontario and you get a completely different perspective of the city of Toronto. Um, I grew up loving to hate Toronto because uh, <laughs> it was the big city and I was more of a small town kind of guy. I like to be out in the bush. I like to fish. I like to hunt. I like to be anywhere but in that urban mess that we call Toronto. Uh, but when you get up to 30,000 feet, even 10,000 feet as you're taking off, you see the city from a completely different perspective. The CN Tower is this big. And, and, and it just, the whole thing becomes manageable and understandable as a city. Um, and, and it's a different, different thing. The same thing happens when you step back from the book of Romans and, and you look at it from a different perspective. You can spend an enormous amount of time in the book of Romans. As a kid, uh, my pastor preached through the book of Romans and he gave new meaning to the word verse by verse. Uh, <laughs> he preached through the book of Romans and he didn't do it in one Sunday like I'm going to do this morning in an overview. He didn't do it in 10 Sundays. He didn't do it in 20. He didn't even do it in 52. Um, it took him four years to get through the book of Romans, <laughs> preaching it verse by verse. And it was so much that I remember standing in the foyer of our church with my closest friend and something fell on the ground, and we looked down, and the book of Romans fell out of my friend's Bible. <laughs> you can spend that much time in the book of Romans. Uh, so today, we're going to get a different picture of it. I'm going to start by looking at why Paul wrote the book of Romans. and Because and, it, it's very important that we see this, because a lot of times we get lost in the theology. We just dive right in, and we see this piece, and we see that piece, and we love it, and it's great. But stepping back and understanding why he wrote it is really important. Did you know that Paul wrote this as a missionary support letter? Isn't that amazing? Paul wrote the book of Romans. Can you imagine getting a 16-chapter letter from one of your missionaries? <laughs> it's maybe a little much. I wouldn't advise that. Um, but not today. Um, but Paul wrote the, the book of Romans, and you see it in chapter 1. Um, he has been longing to see them. I, in verse 11, he says, I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you and make you strong. That is, um, that I may be, uh, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I plan many times to come to you, but I've been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. And so Paul is, is, has been praying for the church at Rome. He wanted to go and see them. And, and now he's telling them that he is planning um, to come to them and, and, and share with them. And you'll find if you flip all the way back to chapter 15, right before he comes to his, 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 his closing words, he tells them... Um, 
This is why, in verse 22, this is why I've often been hindered from coming to you, but now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the servants of the saints there. And so Paul is... He, he sat down to write the book of Romans as a, kind of an introductory letter, a letter saying, look, I'm coming and, and I'm going to spend some time with you and I want you to be prepared because I want you to send me on my way to Spain. And Paul's done this before, uh, sent letters ahead of himself to help the church be prepared for an offering or something else. And, and that's Paul's normal pattern. So when I look at the book of Romans... I don't think that Paul intended to sit down and write 16 chapters. I think he sat down intending to write them uh, a letter and just say, hey, I'm coming. Uh, want you to be prepared. Wanted you to know. And, and so I uh, can't wait till I get there. And something like that probably would have been, if Paul just wrote what he was thinking at the moment, maybe two chapters. But as we understand inspiration of Scripture... We understand that God gets written exactly what he wants, the exact words of scripture from him, but he uses people, he uses personalities, he uses the unique context of these individuals to get exactly what he wanted written, uh, when he wanted written it, and the way he wanted it written. And the Holy Spirit inspires and so as you read this, uh, it, it's interesting because I believe you can see where the Holy Spirit spoke into Paul's life and things turned. See, Paul is writing and he's telling them, you know, I, I thank God for you. Um, I, I just your faith is reported all over the world and, and it's a fantastic things. So I've wanted to come to see you, but I've been prevented to. And Paul tells them. In verse 14, he says, chapter 1, I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. And, and I think it was that sentence that the Holy Spirit used to send Paul into a little bit of a holy tailspin. <laughs> and he went down the rabbit hole at this point into a, just a beautiful theology of the gospel. Because he said, I wanted to preach the gospel to you who are also at Rome. You picture Paul sitting down at some type of a table and he's writing this out. Now, you imagine here for a minute with me, we don't have, like, for Paul, okay, he wasn't sitting down banging this out on a MacBook Pro. He, I mean, he's sitting down, he's got a piece of leather laid out in front of him and he's scratching it out with a quill of some sort on leather with great big letters, because that was Paul's characteristic, right? And he's writing this up. Can you imagine how much leather it would have taken to do this? What he was, what he was actually writing? And, and so he's, he's thinking and he's writing these things. And as he mentions the gospel, he's, it's like, oh, the gospel. And he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And that as he meditates more on the gospel, his thinking and his thoughts become really pretty dark at this point. 
there's a pretty dark perspective that comes on, and he says, you know, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all of the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Um, I'm just get back. As Paul writes this, he's giving us this, this, this picture of the gospel. And this picture... starts out really bleak. It starts out really bleak. And, and for some reason, those of us um, living in Canada today, and I'd say most of the Western world, um, we, we have lost sight of this on a, daily, on a daily basis. You see, as Paul writes and he reflects on the gospel, what he sees is this. The wrath of God is being revealed against all of the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. So you ask the question, why do we plant churches? Well, we plant churches because Jesus commanded us to go and make disciples, right? You remember, you remember the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said, go to all the world. Uh, you know, no, actually, that's, that's the Luke one. Uh, he said, um, uh, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I'll be with you to the very end of the age. So this is the mandate he gives us. When the disciples heard that, when they were given that mandate, they, they responded in a specific way. And we have that story in the book of Acts, right? And it's a church planting story. And Romans now is part of that outflow. And this is what we're seeing, okay? And all in that time frame. And the reason that this is done is because people have turned their back on God. They have abandoned him completely. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Down in verse 28, it says, Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. And then down in verse 32, he says, They not only continue to do these very things, but they approve of those who practice them. <laughs> Is that not the world we live in? It's, it's, it's where we are. Um, the situation that we find ourselves in today is bad. It's bad. The world is in a bad situation. And, and one, of the, one of the, I, th- I believe this is, a, this is you know, work of the evil one uh, that subtly involves, it, it engages in our lives in just hints in different ways. We go out, we go about our day, and there is this sense in our mind that other people are kind of like us. They're just like us. They think like we do. They kind of act like we do. And they're okay. They're not okay. 
They are not okay. That couldn't be further from the truth. People who do not know Christ are not okay. There is, there is a, a fundamental difference that is going on in their lives. If they don't know Christ, their eternity is set for them, but it's an eternity without him. It's a loss and a, and a, and a, and a setting in their life um, that is way bigger than anything else that they currently face in their lives. And yet somehow we kind of act and function as though they're okay, just like me. My neighbors, they're just like me. They're not just like you. And so that's something we have to see. And so as Paul is writing the book of Romans, the first couple chapters, he digs down into this, wow, the world's a mess. And it's kind of a depressing start to the book. Uh, But then he comes to chapter 3, and in chapter 3, he says, in verse 21, there's this great, great transition. He says, but now, but now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. You remember, when it talks about the law, it's talking, referring back to the Old Testament, the Torah, all of that. And you know why it was given, right? It was a teacher, an instructor for us, to teach us that you can't do it. The law is here, and you can't keep it. That's the whole purpose of the law. You're not good enough, and you can't do it. But there is one who will do it in your stead, and that's Jesus. And this is the thing. So the law was a teacher, taught us that, and this righteousness now is from God apart from the law. And it says in verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You see, the transition is beautiful. The picture is, is really, really bad. But what Jesus has done, what God did through Him for us is amazing. And, and we... Uh, somehow get lulled into this idea that, that the gospel is just a... It's like playing Monopoly, if anybody still plays Monopoly, and you get out of get-out-of-jail-free card, and we keep that, you know, just in case. And, and somehow the gospel has become a get-out-of-hell-free card, and we can pull that out and lay that one down when the time comes. And it's, it's not what it is. Gospel is way more than that. Yeah, it affects our eternal state in, in, in that, but it's way more than that. We have been redeemed. We've been bought back with a price, and it's a beautiful thing. In chapter 5, it says God demonstrates his own love for, for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, it is so hard when someone offends you to do something sacrificial for them. And yet we did the ultimate offense. And God, while we were still sinners, sent his son to die in our place. It's beautiful. It's an amazing thing, but it does more than just uh, those basic, basic things. It's much fuller than that. And, and, and beautiful. I remember the first time that I discovered Romans chapter 7. Have you ever read Romans chapter 7? I'm sure most of you have. Lots of you have anyway. If you haven't read Romans chapter 7, you need to. Uh, I was probably about 15 years old the first time I really got Romans chapter 7. And I was like, wait a minute, that's in the Bible? Uh, I was blown away. Romans chapter 7 is incredible. Because as a teenager, I mean, I grew up in the church, but I was an idiot. Um, I, I oh man, as a teenager, I struggled. I, there were so many times when I would be like, okay, God, 
I'm going to confess to you all this stuff. And I had a list. Believe me, there was a long one. And, and I'd confess it all, and I'd be like, okay, God, I'm never going to do that again. And then the next day, um, I'd be praying the same prayer again because I'd done all the same stupid things again. And, and then the next day, it was the same. And I just felt like, I don't know what to do. And then I discovered Romans chapter 7. And I'm like, wait, who wrote that? And I'm like, wait, no. It's the Apostle Paul? And Romans chapter 7 says this. Chapter uh, 7, verse 15, he says, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. I'm like, what? (laughs) And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is no longer... Uh, No longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. For what I do is not the good that I want to do, no, the evil that I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Ah, the struggle. So I find this law at work. uh, When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work within the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am! But it doesn't end there. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. This is the beauty of the gospel. It affects your life today. This afternoon, this evening, tomorrow morning, (laughs) <laughs> when you go to work and you're working by that guy or that woman that you really, okay, they test your sanctification on a daily basis, okay? Uh, the gospel affects that. You've been forgiven already and God wants to transform your heart so that you can love them and know that they are really broken and in a messed up place and they need the hope that you have. This is the beauty of the gospel. It's, it's so much more. Paul goes on and he explains that this, this wonderful, wonderful picture of the gospel. And we know that it's, it's from him. And we know that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Is that beautiful? This is where Paul is, and he is at the peak of that as he comes to the end of Romans chapter 8. And then Romans chapter 9 happens. And he's depressed. Can you believe it? Like he just said, nothing can separate us. We are more than conquerors in all these things. And then he comes to Romans chapter 9, and he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. This is the transition. Paul's like, he's like, it's like he's bipolar all of a sudden. What's going on? Paul's not bipolar. What he's doing is reflecting on the beauty of the gospel, the reality of the state of people. And then he thinks about his own family. 
He thinks about the ones who are the people of Israel, his people. And he realizes that they are without Christ. And it's bad. I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, for the people of Israel. And he grieves. You see, for Paul, what we're seeing is the motivation behind Paul's church planting efforts. He planted churches across the known world. The reason he was going to Spain, he tells us, because there's nowhere else for me to plant a church. I've got to leave basically the whole known, their known world. I've got to go somewhere else to do this. So for Paul, to do nothing is unthinkable. It's unthinkable. Romans chapter 10, um, Paul explains for us... Um, you know, this, this, the unfolding of this commissioning and how we share Christ with others, how they come to faith in Jesus. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they call on one whom they've not believed in? And how can they believe in one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? This is Romans chapter 10. Uh, and, and it's the gospel is so simple. You know that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's with your heart that you believe and and are justified and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. It's beautiful. It's simple. It's profound. In chapter 12, Paul talks about what it looks like for followers of Jesus to live sacrificially. And the people understood sacrifices. Not like we do. You know, we think a sacrifice is, oh, there was no cream left. I had to have my coffee black. Uh, (laughs) They understood sacrifice because they saw it. They knew it was bloody and gory and it was horrible. And then when Paul talks about offer your bodies as living sacrifices, that was mind-blowing. Blood, guts, gore. I am supposed to offer myself somehow as a living picture of that before God. How does that work? What, how does that unfold? And, and this is the thinking that Paul was, was, um, was unfolding for them as they wrestled with this, doing whatever it takes to get the good news out because the world is in desperate need. When we look at the book of Romans and we see it as this picture of the gospel and that Paul unfolds with the situation uh, being laid out as desperate. People have turned their backs on God, all of them, uh, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, and that we realize that, that we are justified by faith in Jesus, that he's done this beautiful thing for us. If we put our faith in him, we can live for him. And we understand that there's a responsibility that comes with knowing that truth, and that is to make it known. And that is part of the mandate that Jesus gave to us to make disciples of all nations. 
We understand those things. And that as Paul's reflection, that doing nothing was unthinkable for him. The gospel was, the, was what drove him. It's what woke him up in the morning. It's what he went to bed thinking about. It was the thing that drove him to do what he did. Suffered beatings and stonings and, and shipwrecks and all kinds of craziness uh, because of the gospel. I want to leave you with a question this morning. This same gospel is ours. The same hope that Paul had is the hope that you and I can have today. And I'm hoping that my, my, I, I believe that many of us in this room have the same hope. I don't know all of you, so I can't say we all do. Um, if we have that hope, then like Paul, doing nothing is unthinkable. And so my question for you this morning that I want to leave with you that only you can answer is this. If doing nothing is unthinkable, what does doing something look like for you? What does doing something look like? You see, some people are gifted evangelists. So you'll have like Billy Graham. And I don't know that the world will ever see another Billy Graham. Uh, Thousands of people giving their lives to Jesus in a day, um, repeatedly, all across the world in different contexts. And whatever we, you know, wrestle with Billy Graham's methods and all of his things, God used him. I'm not Billy Graham. (laughs) You're not Billy Graham. Uh, some people, I've had some friends who are the kind of people who can walk up to a stranger on the street and ask them pointed questions about their eternal state and have the person weeping and giving their heart to Jesus on the street. And I'm like, how did you do that? I'd probably get punched in the teeth. <laughs> that's, it's just, that's what's going to happen. It's just, I'm different than they are. Uh, I, I had one guy in my church planting team when I started the church, and one, who he would say things to you that if I said them, you would be offended and I'd never see you again. He would say them. And, like, he would look at me and say, Tom, you look like you're putting on some weight. <laughs> you know, I'm like, wait a minute. And then he'd invite me to something and I'd go. Like, <laughs> I don't know if people are gluttons for punishment, but that's the kind of thing. He was able to do that. People loved him and they would come. And, and I would lead them to Jesus. He had this gift, this ability to engage people and bring them into context. And I'd make friends with them and lead them to Jesus. And that was the context, the relationship we had working together. Anyway, dozens and dozens of people in that guy's relationship, I was able to lead to Jesus because he brought them to me. And it was really a cool kind of a thing that we worked out together. And everybody has different, different giftings and abilities. My role has me on the road all the time now. I travel all over the place. I'm, I'm always getting in the car or on a plane or something, and I'm gone most of the time. I, I'm feeling the weight of this. I wrestled with it. A few years ago, I, I was really struggling, feeling like, you know, God's put me in a neighborhood. My house is on a, on a court in a neighborhood, and I haven't been there for my neighbors. 
I, I just haven't. And, and I don't know what to do about that. And I was wrestling with it and feeling like the Holy Spirit was at work in some way. And then finally, as I was really just thinking on that before the Lord, I, I just really sensed this one thing that I needed to do. And it would make all the difference. And it wasn't profound. It wasn't, you know, some great apologetic. It was, you should just go outside. When you're home, go outside. And so I began to put that in practice. So when when I'm home, it's in the evening, I look outside, I see my neighbors out, I go outside. Whether I'm going to do something in the garage, I open the door and I'll do something there, but if I go outside... Inevitably, it's like, hey, Tom. And I say, you know, hey, Joe. And we go and talk. And relationships begin to get built. I had one of my neighbors who, you know, you, we are in Canada. We had lots of snow. Uh, and so one of my neighbors, I had gone around and I snowblowed out his driveway. He didn't have a snowblower. And... and um, I didn't really think anything of it. I was just trying to be a nice guy, trying to help. And he, one day in the summertime, I was out washing the car, and he came across the street, and he said, I suppose you know. And I I, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, well, yesterday I got up and went to work, and I came home, and my wife had got a moving van, She packed up the house and my kids and she's gone and I don't know where they are. And there's just a note. And the only things she left in the house were the gifts that I had given to my kids. And this is a 35-year-old man standing at the end of my driveway weeping. And he said, I thought I needed to come and tell you because you're my friend. That's when I started to feel really guilty because I didn't even know his last name. Uh, <laughs> but I'd been going outside. And I knew his name was Paul. And he considered me his friend. And so he wept in the end of my driveway telling me his story. And one of my other neighbors came out because I'd been going outside. Her name's Jan. And she said, we're the next ones. It's not going well. And then a few months ago, a few months later, about a year and a half ago now, I looked outside, and there's Keith. Well, Keith's next door, and he's frail as anything. He's not that old, but he's got cancer, and it's riddled his body. And uh, so he was going out to get his recycle bin from the side of the street. And I'd talked with Keith a few times, but he was pretty hard to talk to. Didn't want to. He was always cagey around anything that was of significance. And I watched him going out, and it's like minus 20. It was freezing cold. And he's walking out to get his recycle bin. He's all bundled up, but he's walking like this. And I'm thinking, he's going down. So I run outside, slippers and a sweater, no hat, no coat. And Keith wants to talk. <laughs> you didn't notice that I'm follically challenged, okay? So it's minus 20. I'm outside, and it's freezing cold. And Keith says to me, Tom, I nearly met my maker this week. And I'm like, I know, Lord, this is it, isn't it? And so I said, Keith, 
if you met him, would you know him? And I was able to lead Keith to Jesus. And he remembered verses that he'd learned as a little boy and hadn't been to church since he was 10 years old. He remembered verses. He remembered things. And he gave his life to Jesus at minus 20 out on the sidewalk while I was shaking. Like this. <laughs> from the, I was literally shaking. And he came to Jesus. And now he's with Jesus. That's beautiful. Um, What does it look like to do something? You know, I am not a great evangelist. I'm not a fantastic, you know, with my words. I, I, when it comes to apologetics, I get scared half to death. My mouth gets dry. I don't know what to say. But I went outside. Keith's with Jesus today. So I want to challenge you. You can do it too. You know, just because I get, get this opportunity and I'm up here doesn't mean I'm any different than you. It's simple things. And I don't know what those simple things are for you, but it begins with being a friend somehow to people who don't know Jesus. So I challenge you. What does doing something look like for you? Father, you really are an amazing God. Your gospel of hope is so beautiful because you stop at nothing to win us. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, the glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.